Since 1993, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. Now at Copenhagen, save $100 instantly for every $1,000 you spend on stressless recliners and sofas or save $300 on stressless sunrise recliners. For more ways to save, shop online at copenhagenliving.com or visit our showroom on Breaker Lane. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the podcast about the people, places, and things we love about Austin. Our podcast is from the feature staff at the Austin American Statesman, and we're sponsored by Copenhagen Furniture. I'm multimedia producer Elizabeth Dallas. Push up those glasses and gird your geeky loins, because this week we're getting down to the nerdy nitty gritty with Suzanne Scott. Suzanne is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Texas at Austin, where she specializes in all things fandom. We chatted about the evolution of fan culture, her new book titled Fake Geek Girls, Fandom, Gender, and the Convergence Culture Industry, and our own relationships with pop culture, including the characters we both cosplayed this July at San Diego Comic-Con. Here's our conversation. Suzanne Scott. Thank Hello. you for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. Okay, so I forget when exactly I came to know you, but I found you on Twitter, and like you had said something really cool, and so I was like, hey, you know, there's a, you're saying cool stuff. And then I noticed that you were based in Austin. I was like, what? And then you studied, <laughs> like, the first word in your uh, Twitter profile is Afikam? Akafan. Akafan. Yes. And I looked it up, and what exactly does it mean? So, Akafan is a sort of scholarly identity that those of us who study fandom and fan cultures have kind of, like, orbited around for a long time now. And basically, it's just about trying to describe the fact that we sort of have a hybrid identity. We self-identify as academics. We study mm-hmm. fan culture. We also self-identify as fans, which sort of gives us particular insights into fan culture. Um, and I think that having that right at the start of my Twitter profile is really important to me in part because like, I don't want it to seem like I'm this sort of like you know, uh, anthropologists who studying these odd people who like write fan fiction from afar, and I'm often mm-hmm. my with my notepad in the bushes. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I really I hate that kind of um, sort of distanced ethnography. So I wanted to really be clear that like I'm part of the culture that I'm studying. I self identify as a fan. I've always self identified as a fan girl, um, and so I wanted that to be sort of front and center. That's awesome. Can you yeah. kind of break down uh, in your words a little bit of like what? kinds of things you study? Yeah. So I, um, as I said, I'm a fan scholar. So I study fan culture, but obviously that can mean many, many different things. It's a huge, huge field. It's a growing field. Mm-hmm. Um, I specifically am interested in mostly thinking about the gender dynamics of contemporary fan and geek culture, specifically over like the last decade as fandoms really move from the margins to the mainstream. Like fans used to be this kind of like uh, shadowy subculture and now they're very much a mainstream power demographic. And so I'm interested and like how that shift has sort of benefited particular types of fans, has privileged certain types of fan activity or engagement over others, and how that privileging of certain types of fans and certain types of activities tends to focus on activities we've historically aligned with fanboys. Mm-hmm. So things like consumption and collecting and canonical mastery and that sort of thing. And then how this in turn has been kind of um, used by very small subsets of predominantly white, straight, cishet male fans to sort of alienate women within fan culture. So I'm interested in the gender politics of fan culture. I'm also interested interested in um, like contemporary industry fan relations because like... 
we've, you know, obviously with the rise of social media, we've seen this moment where industry has to be much more attentive to fans. Fans often have a more direct line to industry. So I'm interested in things around like fan activism campaigns and the impact those might have. So I'm interested sort of just like in the contemporary moment within fandom going mainstream and how this has had kind of various types of mostly, at least the stuff I study tends to be mostly the negative fallouts of all of this and not necessarily the positive stuff. I mean, to be fair... Sonic the Hedgehog did not look good. Oh no, I I'm not here to defend Sonic <laughs> no, the Hedgehog. No, no. To, but, to, but, yeah, yeah, to explain Sonic the Hedgehog yeah. just looks like a horrible character, oh, yeah. and there's a big campaign. Oh yeah, yeah, no. So like the fan activism campaigns range from like you know barrier gaze, which is about sort of like responding to uh, ki- tropes of killing off lesbian characters and why we need better representation to like redo Sonic right because he looks terrible. So like fan activism can cover a wide array of things. Sure. What was interesting about the Sonic thing though was it also shows how attentive fans are to like industry relations because there was also like a blowback to the blowback where like everyone was like oh Sonic looks terrible we can all agree Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was like a secondary wave of kind of fan activism around it that was about like the labor politics of uh, like CGI artists right and how like we're not really talking about like how they had to do these the conditions under which they had to make this character look a certain way this sort of and all of that. So, like, I think it's really fun to kind of look at the various levels of fan activism that often come in waves when this sort of thing happens. Like, the Sonic trailer gets released, and suddenly there's, like, four different waves of fan activism that all happen in very quick succession online. Yeah, I remember a little bit after that, you, you know, it's kind of like the waves of, I guess, depression. You're angry, and then you're like, no, we made a change. And then you kind of realize, oh, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. Because a lot of people were going coming out after that saying this is kind of like Mass Effect like yeah. the big thing about you know changing what Mass Effect 2 or 3 yeah yeah 3 and people were kind of like well that didn't really work and so it's kind of like oh wait wait hold on yeah I mean we're in this really weird moment now where you know there's so much back and forth about like quote unquote fan service right this idea about like the fact that fans are this kind of angry mob and that the industry feels the need to give them what they want. Um, I think that often really obscures the kind of power dynamics that still exist between industry and fans, right? So often the power of fans to get what they want is overstated. So I think that there's been an interesting kind of push and pull around that, right? So in some ways, fans can speak back to industry. They can have a direct impact on a media object in a way that they probably couldn't a couple decades ago, um, even with an organized fan campaign. But Oftentimes, when you when it gets reported, it's often about this sort of like angry mob of fans getting their way, and that often really sort of doesn't really account for the sort of complex power dynamics that exist between industry and fans still. And so, I, I just I, I wish that all the kind of reporting that often gets done about this sort of stops at the scandal and doesn't actually dig a little bit deeper into like whether these changes are actually being made and at what level they're being made. Sure. Now, when you say fan, are we t- we're talking about pop culture? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, kind of levels of so fandom? yeah, yeah. So here's so here's where this gets really interesting. Well, generally, cult, so I, I teach a gender and fan studies class at both the graduate level and undergraduate level at UT. And the first thing I do, the first exercise in every class that I teach on fandom is what is a fan? Like, well, I say the word fan, what pops into your head? And inevitably, people will go to very s- sort of gross stereotypes. So like comic book guy from The Simpsons is a fanboy, right? And, or like, you know, Twilight fangirl screaming at Robert Pattinson, right? They'll go to the, or like, you know, soccer, like soccer hooligans or whatever. They'll go to these kind of like very extreme stereotypes. And then we start breaking it down even further. And it's like, well, what makes somebody a fan? And this is something that within fan studies is like often a very big point of debate. So 
most people would say you're a fan if you really, really like something. If you have a deep affection for uh, a particular media object, a TV show, a movie, a celebrity, uh, and so on, right? Within fan studies, often the case has been that we really focus on fans who move from being very into something, consuming it very actively, to actually producing their own content. So oftentimes the fan within fan studies are the people who are making things like fan art or fan fiction. They, they move from some kind of cultural consumption to some kind of cultural production. Now, in this day and age, does cultural production mean like retweeting celebrities or like interacting on Twitter? I would say sure, hmm. right? Um, but oftentimes it's, it has to go beyond just a purely consumptive state for people to often think about it as fans within the field of fan studies. Now, that's not all fan scholars. Um, but that's it has historically been kind of what's been the focus of fan studies. Um, for me personally, I like I get really anxious about kind of boundary policing who does and who does not get to self identify as a fan, right? Sure. For obvious reasons. Um, when the kinds of fans I like to study are those who do take culture and do something with it, right? Um, but. I'm also interested in like interesting consumption practices around like say like fan fashion or fan merchandise or collecting or curating fan collections. Like all of these things to me feel very active. They don't feel passive or just purely consumptive, right? Um, so I'm interested in anything that kind of moves beyond just like just like I watched it all on Netflix in one week. Like that that to me does not a fan necessarily make. That makes you an avid consumer of something, but it doesn't necessarily make you a fan in my mind. Yeah, it kind of to me, it sounds like casual versus precipitary or precipitary. Precip- yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Precip- <laughs> now, now oh, it's, no. it's, it's catching. Uh, yeah, like so, participation, some kind of participation or some kind of communal involvement to me is often the sort of barrier that I use to differentiate between audiences and fans. How are you a fan, and what are you a fan of? Oh my gosh, how much time do we have? Uh, we go all night. Yeah, I. So yeah, I mean, I. I've always had a very avid relationship with media. Like, part of it was that my mom would let me watch like Sesame Street. Like, let's go back, right? Like, I remember very vividly my childhood being organized around media in particular ways. Like, I would watch Sesame Street multiple times a day and like see different things in it. And now looking back, I'm like, can I can retroactively say like, oh, like I'm clearly cut out to be a media scholar because I can watch things over and over and see all the different layers, even in Sesame Street when I was, you know, four. So deep. Um, yeah, I mean, I might be projecting just a little bit there. But even, you know, like I remember as a child, like my bedtime was orchestrated around The Muppet Show. And that was like a really important object for me, both because it structured my day, literally. I was like, I could stay up that one night and it was a special occasion. But also I remember being very into The Muppets when I was little. Sure. Uh, I had all sorts of like, and I also would have very like big elaborate themed birthday parties around my fandoms when I was really young. So Aww. like I had an Annie birthday party and like a Muppets birthday party and like all these things that were sort of like... Like I very I held media very close to me as part of my identity from when I was really young. I didn't really get involved in like fandom fandom probably until I was in like middle school and high school, and that was very much about Star Wars, um, and then later Buffy. Ah, uh, Buffy I think was the first like online fan community I really participated in. It was the first. It was like that was like early days of the internet. Yeah, right? yeah, like, forums. Yeah, forums like IRC chats. Like let's go back. I was like role playing Cordelia in an IRC chat like back oh, in back so in ninety seven when I was a freshman in college. Right on. Uh, yeah, so I you know I really got into the kind of. Um, 
creative aspects of fandom at that time. It was also the time that I learned that there was a field of fan studies, which had just kind of emerged in the early 90s. I think a lot of people discover fandom in college because you suddenly have like a way to organize all your time, like you, your control over your day in, in a pure way for the first time in your life. Oh, sure. Yeah. You can stay up really late. No one's going to tell you to go to bed, right? Yeah. So I vividly remember my freshman year of college being like up at like three, four in the morning, probably annoying the hell out of my college roommate and just like you know being online and like being in communities talking about Buffy writing Buffy fan fiction um, which I think still exists here and there I created the first website on like GeoCities for the character of Oz on Buffy oh wow which I don't think is archived anymore but like for a while I was running a very popular fan site for Oz Oz did have like Uh, awesome like Gifts. Yeah. Oh, it was. It was <laughs> red. It, I wish I. Could, I wish I had somehow documented it because it was very. It was very GeoCities. Let's oh, just man. put it that way. Very I just retro. Think the, the Space Jam website. Yeah. It was very busy. <laughs> I remember being very hey. busy in its look. Go big. Um, yeah. So so that was when I got really involved in fandom, and then um, beyond that, I you know I've had so many fandoms over the years. I tend to like to have a, a primary fandom that I'm very focused on. Unfortunately, as I've gotten older, and I do this now for a living, I, I have the great joy to get to like teach and write about fan culture for a living. I'm not as involved in some of the fan communities as I used to be when I had more free time. Um, recently, gosh, I'm trying to think. Like, I went through a big Battlestar Galactica phase, which is where my Twitter handle comes from. Right, which yeah. is, your Twitter handle is? I heart fat Apollo. Okay. So there's a very kind of notorious... Um, Looking back on it, it's it's kind of terrible, actually, and pretty fatphobic um, episode of Battlestar Galactica where a main character, Apollo, is like basically, there's a time jump. He's gained a bunch of weight. He's in a fat suit. Um, and he's just like cramming bonbons in his mouth and complaining and being a whiner. And to me, that was a perfect distillation of the character, which I don't particularly like. Like, I've always <laughs> thought Apollo was kind of a whiner and a terrible hero character. Mm-hmm. And so for me... Those sorts of episodes, I felt really leaned into the fact that I was like, oh, no, the show sees him the way I see him, which is he's kind of awful, right? Sure, sure. Um, the fact that his awfulness was sort of being aligned with him being overweight is obviously terrible. Um, and I don't endorse that in, my, in my Twitter handle. Um, but I but I did have, like, you, it tells you, it pinpoints to the moment when I got on Twitter, because I must have, like, literally just seen that episode. Wow. And then made that Twitter handle... Uh, and now it's kind of stuck around for so long that I feel like I shouldn't change it. It's a weird, like, archival moment in my history. I totally get that. Um, and there have been a couple points where people have been like, you sure you don't want to go with something, like, slightly more professional? Um, and I'm like, eh, it's fine. I'm I, an I, ACA I, fan. I, I've, yeah, I've embraced, <laughs> I've embraced the Twitter handle that I created. I, I've made my bed, and so now I'm going to lie. <laughs> sure. Thing. Yeah. You had a time about Star Galactica. Yeah. Right now, what are you kind of feeling? Oh my gosh, there's so many things. I I'm really into the good place right now. And I the have good not place seen fa- that. the good place is fantastic and it's going into its final season. Really? Yes. Oh, uh, they're leaving it on I, I, I like it like every good fan, I respect that they want to leave it and finish it strong the way they intended it. Yes. On the other, as a fan, I'm devastated and very sad sure. uh, that it's going away. Uh, that show is great. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've actually become a fan in recent years. It's often the case I used to go veer more towards like sci-fi, uh, fantasy, you know, horror. I was mm-hmm. big into Hannibal. That oh. sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Hey, Love. I'm actually re- I'm re-watching Hannibal right now as like my summer treat to myself as nice. I like, you know, clean my house and stuff. But yeah, I've, I've been watching a lot of like comedy. So like I'm big into Brooklyn Nine-Nine. The Good Place is great. The Good Place is really fascinating because... 
its fandom is is like it has a lot of philosophical underpinnings. Sure. Um, and so like its fandom can do like very deep kind of intellectual like very you know high minded dives into the sort of philosophies that underpin the shows uh, jokes and that sort of thing. But also there's just like so many wonderful characters and character dynamics and relationships. I'm always very much drawn to like character. Um, if I feel like I have characters that I can latch on to, those are the fandoms I tend to dive deeply into because I want to see how other people explore those characters and elaborate on those characters. The fandoms, there are shows that I love, but that I don't feel any kind of personal attachment to characters. And those I can kind of very much appreciate, but I would never say I was like in the fandom of. Sure. Um, so like, you know, I, you know, while I, you know, watched and appreciated something like Mad Men, I was never that invested in its fandom nor would I run around sort of evangelizing for Mad Men not dressing up Uh, like 60s I mean I should it's a good look for me but yeah yeah, no Um, yeah but so like right now like so it's it's mostly some comedies and obviously as you know because we were just at Comic Con together I am absolutely nuts over Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse it has monopolized my entire past year in terms of my thinking my energy my love um, I'm forcing it upon, you know, 300 students come this fall. Like, it was the one thing I immediately knew was going on my syllabus for my fall storytelling class. Mm-hmm. Um, that movie just is, to me, a perfect, it's a perfect film. So let's dig into that a little bit. Okay, yeah. You already mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, we were both at Comic-Con. Yes. And you were, you, you did a cosplay. I did multiple cosplays from that movie, actually. Oh, you only saw me one of the I two days. I saw you one day. I know. So I so this year, you know, every year I, I cosplay at Comic-Con. Um, my husband also cosplays, and I will admit freely and openly that he's the better fabricator of the two of us. And he also taught him. He also took some sewing lessons last year. So I am often leaning on him uh, for some for some assistance and things. So we spend a lot of time, like basically, the minute Comic Con is over, we start to think about next year's Comic Con. Wow! And often we will we'll wait until something comes up that we see. We try to do something that's current, right? So like something the thing that we loved most from the year that year. Um, so when I saw Spider-Verse, I immediately leaned over in the middle of the theater. We weren't, the movie's not even over yet. <laughs> I didn't know where this thing was going. And I leaned over and I said, I'm, I'm going to be Olivia Octavius, Doc Ock, for Comic-Con this year. That's so good. And, and I like, want, no one's just yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'm like, I want to do it both ways. I want to do like casual, like business casual Olivia Octavius, yes. which I did on... Um, on uh, what day? Friday at Comic Con, mm-hmm. and then Saturday and Sunday I did the full Doc Ock tentacles, the whole nine yards. Wow! Um, and that was really fun. We like to pick things that sort of challenge us in terms of like how we're gonna like literally how we're gonna pack this thing and get it to California. So yeah, how did that happen? So yes, because describe. Okay, so okay, yeah. her her regular outfit. She has this big hair mm-hmm. and kind of like a like a jacket, right? like a lab coat. It's very like business. So she's got like just like a dress, a lab coat. A giant wig, which was really the only piece that I had to do anything sort of special with. It has sort of purple streaks. So, like, the casual dressable was literally just, like, find a giant, bushy, curly wig, make it even bigger. So there was, like, bumpets and teasing and all sorts of styling that had to be done to the wig. And then add some purple streaks and highlights, which I did. And and then basically everything else was purchased. Bought a lab coat, bought glasses, bought a shirt and a skirt, and I was done. Nice. Very easy, very cheap. Also, <laughs> it's an expensive hobby. The other, which was the full like super villain outfit, 
uh, that was much more complex because, right. first of all, it's a cart- it's an animated movie, right? So I realized very quickly that there was no way that I was going to get screen accurate. I've seen some people cosplay Doc Ock who do get screen accurate, and I am deeply in awe of them. But basically, uh, there's the, the part of her shirt that was I was having a hard time with was there's this kind of like clear plastic um, kind of. Um, almost like shell um, that was like translucent, but not totally clear. And I just couldn't, I was like shopping for fabrics forever and I couldn't find anything that was going to make, that was going to work. And so a lot of this just comes out of like trial and error and that's why you have to start early. So the first couple of months are just sourcing stuff. I was like, okay, I found the pants. Great. I've got boots, combat boots already. Those will work great. Um, Do we want anything to light up? If so, like, you know, I had a corset already from a cosplay from last year. So we just built the, cor- the you know, the corset piece she has on over that. So a lot of this is like, what have I already purchased that I can reuse? Because I'm thrifty like that. Yep. Then it's sort of like, what can I buy? What am I going to buy versus what do we have to make? Um, so I, there's lots of lists involved. And then it becomes, you know... Um, you know, what's going to take a long time. So for we knew that the tentacle arms were going to be the thing that we needed to spend the most time on, both because they're tentacles and they have to hold up being pressed into crowds at Comic-Con all day. Right. Um, but also we are coming from Texas to San Diego, so we need to pack this thing in a suitcase. So it also had to be collapsible. So you, there are four... Four tentacles. Ar- yes, four tentacles. And you ma- it looked like kind of a tubing yes. type situation? Yes, so, so basically I bought a laptop backpack off of Amazon, a cheap laptop backpack. Okay. We put a board in there to be the sort of base for all the arms. There was like metal, like sort of a wire armature to hold all the wires, to hold the tentacles on. And then the tentacles themselves were made out of dust collector hose that I got at like Harbor Freight. Okay. <laughs> we put a little LED light in there to sort of give them a little something something. And then the actual claws were made out of uh, foam, which is like the cosplayer's best friend. Ah, yes. And then I th- we three D printed a couple little discs to go on the on the on the tentacles to give them a little something extra. Nice. But basically, the tentacles would pop off the backpack. The backpack would fold flat, and then we could like pop the tentacles on and off. And the tentacles, since they were dust collector hose, would kind of collapse down to be very small. Oh wow! So yeah, just hacked it. Yeah, no, and this is <laughs> I give full credit to my wonderful, wonderful partner Luke Pebbler, who basically figured this all out. Like I was like, this laptop b- backpack will work. Let's do wire, and I've got the dust collector hose. But I did, but he was the one who was figuring out how to like make it, you know, collapsible basically, which was a huge, huge part yeah, of this. big time. Yeah. So I have pink hair for yes. those who cannot see me right now. Um, and I wanted to dress up as something because <laughs> my first Comic-Con was in 2016. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, this video game called Splatoon was big. Mm-hmm. So I was an inkling. And that's pretty simple. You just kind of have different color streetwear. But when I was thinking about it this year, um, I, I love Detective Pikachu. Mm-hmm. And my friend made the pun, Detective Pikachu. And so I was like, great, awesome. I can just go as pink and have Pikachu ears and Pikachu tail. I saw it. You looked amazing. Thank you. You look great. <laughs> and it wasn't until like it was maybe a couple of weeks before I was like, oh, I have to make this thing. And then luckily my friend Christine, who's just, she loves cosplay. Actually, um, we met on stage at Star Wars Celebration oh, when we were both brought up. And she said, hey, were you on the plane from Austin? I was like, oh my gosh, what? So she helped me construct a uh, tale, but it took hours, yeah. hours and hours. Yeah. Like there is some serious dedication to this. And I cosplay because for different reasons. But when you cosplay, what are you getting out of it, and why do you do it? I mean, a lot. Honestly, a lot of the fun of it is like it is like it is a hobby to start with, right? Sure. For us, so so we're not doing it professionally. I'm not trying to make a living off of this. It's purely for fun for us. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so part of the fun of it is I like I'm a person who loves problem solving. And so I love like, you know, thinking about like, okay, well, this Doc Ock is not going to look screen accurate. So how can I make it look extra cartoony? Right. So like do a heightened version of what's in the actual animated film. And so like, you know, I had like light up bands that went around my thighs uh, that match light up bands that went around my arms. Those were all like, you know, like repurposed like LED dog collars. Like I like the kind of problem solving <laughs> aspect of yeah. trying to sort of sort out um, costumes. The actual like wearing of it at the con is it's really hard. I feel like it's really hard to describe the feeling of it unless you've actually done it. Hmm. There's so this year was really fun because I knew going in that this movie would be pretty popular. Um, I knew that there would be a ton of people dressed up like Miles Morales or Spider Gwen. There'd be like a ton of people to interact with. Like part of the fun of going to a con is getting to meet a bunch of people you've never met before. Now you can wait out for a really popular panel for four or five hours and talk to the 10 people surrounding you for hours and hours. And I've done that in previous years. Sure. But I like a kind of quick interaction, like figuring out, like, you know, playing around with people. Like it's like being a kid again. You get to sort of play act. Like I, you know, I had a, you know, illustrious community theater acting career when I was young. I'm just kidding. It was not a lesson. It was very chill. <laughs> There's a war. Um, yeah, sure. no, no, yeah. I mean, but I was really into like musicals and play acting and, and pretend when I was a kid. And so you get to you know really to to embody a character is just very fun. Um, it's just, it's a real sense of getting to sort of like be yourself while also getting to be somebody else. I think that's very freeing. Um, but this year was particularly fun because I got to interact with basically like like hundreds and I mean hundreds of like adorable little kids who are dressed up as like, you know, Miles or Gwen Stacy. And, you know, like their parents would be like, fist bump, Doc Ock. And they'd be like, no, you know, and then like, <laughs> I'd be like, I respect it. You shouldn't fist bump supervillains, you know. Uh, you know, so there were, there were those kind of interactions. I got to talk to people that I had never met before. We, you know, I, I at one point photobombed a whole group of like Spider-Verse cosplayers. Like I snuck up behind them and just like jumped into a photo with them. Nice. Um, you know, it was just like those kind of interactions you you don't get anywhere else. And being in a costume allows people to interact with you in that way. Now, granted, there's like a whole like very dark history because I'm like, you know, I, I cover a lot of cynical stuff within geek culture. So like sure. there's a whole dark history about like, you know, people, you know, taking photos of cosplayers without consent and that sort of thing. Cosplay's not I, yeah, cosplay is not consent. I, I haven't had any of those experiences. And in fact, I think it, those kinds of movements that have happened over the past, you know, couple of years in particular have have really, um, I think, made it a culture where people are very attentive to asking permission. So, you know, people will often say, like, can I take a photo? Can I take a photo? Can I take a photo? To right. the extent that you're like, I'm wearing I'm wearing tentacles. But I, I appreciate the I appreciate the <laughs> gesture, you know? Yeah. Um, so this year was great. Got tons of love. You feel, I mean, like, look, it's very shallow, but you really do kind of get to be a celebrity for a day. Yeah. Um, and it's really fun to have people, like, compliment your costume and take your picture and want to be in pictures with you and, and ask you questions about how you made it. I, I got a couple of con awards from various costume guilds that had never happened to me before that this was, year yeah that was crazy oh, uh, wow. like, p- there are people roving around the co- the con floor with these adorable like amazing cool badges that they would say like we're giving you a con like best of con award and i'm like that's amazing that's like so nice. now i'm gonna like put them all up in my office get them all framed <laughs> like medals of honor right um last year though zero people recognized us and it was I'm not gonna lie, pretty devastating. Because oh, really, uh, you so what? So last year, I we were very into this Hulu series Future Man. That's right, right. And I was like, Future Man has to be big at Comic Con. It's like it's like a it's like a streaming show. It's it's like Seth Rogen produced. It's like, yeah. it's like it's not 
it's it was not an obscure niche thing. Like we had cosplayed Black Mirror before you could even get it in the states. Like when we had pirated it, and in that year I expected zero people to recognize us. I was like, okay, that's fair. The show hasn't come out here yet. We're being like hipster cosplayers and cosplaying a show that's only available if you pirate it. Last year, I was genuinely pretty stunned that zero people recognized us. Wow. Um, and I, frankly, to the extent that I. I have uh, I have an ex who is very good friends with Seth Rogen, and I sort of sent a message to him that I was like, you better tell your boy to like get their marketing game on point, because if people at Comic-Con don't know what the show is, you're in real trouble. Sure. Like, um, so, yeah, that so like it can go either way. I think you have to be, the thing with cosplay, you have to be in it for the process of it and getting to embody that character, right? If you're just in it for like the adoration and the photos and people paying attention to you, you inevitably will get your heart broken, I think, at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think it's just, it's more about just like, I mean, what other time aside from Halloween do we really get to just dress up like that uh, when you're 40? I, I don't know of any other time. And this, I take advantage of it when I have the opportunity. When I cosplay, it was a, uh, when I was walking around, people would be like, oh, there's Detective, there's Detective Pink Pikachu and a girl Pikachu that just like around yeah, yeah, yeah. me, and, like not directed towards me. And it would be really fun to, I don't know, just hear different voices yeah. like behind me. And I actually got mobbed by four girls that all hugged me. They're like, we're oh, hugging all the Pikachus. I was like, ah, this is, that's, everything's done, I'm done. Like, this is the best thing in my life. Because it was like walking around uh, Comic-Con, especially this year, I saw so many Miles Morales. I saw tons of Fat Thors. Yeah. I saw <laughs> yeah. lots of Gwen Stacy's and a lot of like, you know, mishmash and this. And it's really, really cool to walk around and see people just leaning into doing something that makes them feel yeah. Good. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought it up at 40 because sometimes I, I get scared or something and I feel like, am I being too like much like a kid? No. Okay. <laughs> I solved that one for you. No, I, <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, ju- I literally just turned 40. Um, Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, I'm feeling ancient. Just kidding. I feel bad. <laughs> um, no. So, I mean, this part of this is, you know, I think... Listen, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that I, I didn't benefit from the fact that the field and the profession I've chosen has allowed me to sort of like maintain my quote unquote adolescent interest in things much longer. Like I have a good excuse, right? Sure. It's for research. It's for work. Um, <laughs> and I abuse that excuse all the time. Um, but on the other hand, I'm just like, you know what? I, like I feel zero guilt or shame for liking things that were maybe designed for children um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just, I've, I'm missing that gene that makes me worry about whether I'm, I'm, I'm liking age appropriate things or not. I forget what your question was though. I mean, you're on the right track. Like, is there a unspoken cap on how long you can like be into something? No, I know. I honestly don't think so. I mean, look, I think part of this also, and I think that it, I think increasingly we're going to see based on the way that sort of Hollywood franchise logics are going right now, I think increasingly I think you're going to see that stigma fall away a little bit. I think that if you look to like long-standing franchises like Star Wars, which, which have always been kind of a generational thing, right? You know, or Star Trek or whatever, right? The things that were, you know, that parents loved and then passed along that sort of fanish love or affection to their kids and they watched it with them. I think as we move towards this era of like reboots and sort of, uh, you know, nostalgia, you know, sort of media being driven by nostalgia and older intellectual property. I think that it makes some of those kinds of stigmas around like, well, is it appropriate for you to still like 
fantasy or still like science. You know, like I think those those sorts of things are falling away. I think we I think that, you know, video games, you know, are obviously like one of the most major entertainment media we have now. And certainly like that used to be considered kind of adolescent uh, you know, medium and, and certainly isn't anymore. I think you're seeing people age up more and more that grew up in fandom and who have no real desire to kind of, you know, abandon that when they hit 40. I don't think like something clicks inside of you and suddenly you want to put on a business suit and listen to Bach. I just don't think that happens. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. That was like, oh, it was a horrible stereotype in its own right, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> if anything, though, I, I because I teach students who are like 18 and through 20, I do get a very clear sense of, like, when I've missed the zeitgeist on something. Like, I usually, I, I think of myself as being pretty up on what the kids are into these days. Do you What's know what I mean? fellow kids? I know, exactly. I'm very Steve Buscemi <laughs> in my class. Like, I, mo- I, mostly, I mostly try to, you know, like, I mostly try to be cool about it. But occasionally I will be um, sort of blindsided by something. And I remember the first thing that I really was not up on that my students were like, Wait, you don't you don't know about this and I felt like a total dummy was probably Steven Universe I've caught up oh you know what I mean like there's a lot yeah. or, like, or like Rick and Morty I definitely like was aware of but only got in really into because my students were really into it sure um, so there's certain things that I think like I still am kind of like I've clearly aged out of like the zeitgeist around particular things and need to get sort of hip to by the kids in my classes but um, they're not kids they're adults um, but it, you know that, I, that uh, they're still showing me new things that I new properties new you know kind of memes that I that I'm sort of have clearly aged out of just in terms of like who I follow on Twitter or whatever but uh yeah I don't feel any shame about that either yeah you don't feel uh there's no anxiety to have to constantly be up to snuff on trends I mean, I try to be up on things just because I tend to be grading work that my student, like if my students are writing about a particular media property, like I will get up to speed on it because I want to be able to assess that work, you mm-hmm. know, fully. And I like you don't get extra credit if you pick a media property that I personally like and am fanished about, right? Like you sh- that should not be the way that education works. So it, sure. it's not in my classes. Um, so I will often sort of get caught up to speed on things. The thing that has really changed as I've gotten old and curmudgeonly <laughs> is that I have stopped deciding I need to be in on the big cultural thing that is going on. So, like, for example, I tried to watch Game of Thrones. I, this is, like, going to be when people turn off this podcast, I feel like. Oh. I'm going to make a confession. I tried to watch Game of Thrones. I thought it was fine. Hey. Uh, I, it's not as, like, I understood why people liked it. I particularly think that a lot of the reason why people really loved Game of Thrones is it was kind of a license to watch, quote-unquote, quality television and also get a little bit of softcore pornography in there. Sure. Um, people seem very reticent to admit that that's why they like watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> Whenever I've brought that up, people get very offended. And I'm like, well, I mean, there's a lot of boobs on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, so I, so I, I like to find, I will say that the kind of, uh, many, many kind of like sexual abuse narratives on that show really did not play well with me. I was like, why? And I sort of saw myself kind of, I guess, mid-season two or three. And I said, like, Ugh, like, why am I forcing myself to consume this thing that's not giving me really any pleasure? I'm watching it purely out of a sense of cultural obligation to be like in this kind of fanish moment. And I knew my students were excited about it. So I wanted to be up on it. And I will say that I caught up on everything 
prior to the season finale. I just did it all in one fell swoop. And I watched the final season. I got to say, watching that final season with zero emotional investment in that show was actually really just super fascinating to me. It became more of like an academic experiment for me than like a fanish one, right? Hiding in the bushes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. I know. I've I've become the thing I've hated. I've become the the enemy that I'm within. Uh, Yeah, no, I... Yeah, so that was like so for me I could step back enough and say like I don't I'm not really emotionally invested in what's happening but I am very fascinated by how this is going down with the fandom. And there's been a lot of properties where like I'm more into the fandom than I am into the show. I understand that. So Game of Thrones is definitely one. Game of Thrones fandom super interesting. Game of Thrones the television series. Yeah, I could take it or leave it. You know, uh I've just offended like all the listeners of this podcast, I'm sure, oh, by no, saying okay. that out loud. We have a we have a podcast from the Statesman newsroom that's all about Game of Thrones. They're right. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's yeah. funny at Comic Con. I um, my mom going out. She's she loves Game of Thrones. She's like, you should go get a picture signed by Game of Thrones people. I was like, one does not simply go into Comic Con <laughs> yeah, exactly. and get something signed. Exactly. But I did walk by the WB booth, which they had Game of Thrones people on top of it. They were about to sign, so I actually snapped a picture of Jamie and Maisie Williams was up there, and I was like. Here you go. Like, now that's her souvenir. <laughs> Listen, I could watch their press tours all day, every day. That's sure. a show I'd watch. Just collected press tours and interviews of that cast. They're all delightful. Sure. I love all those people. <laughs> I The show, not as much. <laughs> so as a fan going into the profession of stunning fandom, what are some things that you've learned that's been kind of like interesting well i mean i think fan studies is is you know a relatively young field we've only been around since the late 80s early 90s um, but it's grown obviously exponentially as fan culture has grown exponentially over the last decade i think one of the things that i you know fan studies started out by being very focused on female fans female fan communities female fan text modes of textual production like fan fiction and fan art that we sort of associate predominantly with women who are producing that content um so one i think what i've learned over the years is like oh the field that i'm in seems to think that fandom is very much a woman-centered space right like that women tend to be the sort of movers and shakers within fandom the way that culture sees fandom is often this like very masculinized space right so this idea that like so that kind of mishmash and i think that's really what's at the center of why i wanted to write this book that i just released it's all about like the notion of the fake geek girl right because within fan studies like that that idea that like fakey girls would be like just laughable right like fan studies comes out of feminist theory comes out of queer theory it's interested in women and what they do and make with the culture that they're given right and they're often very dissatisfied with as women and fandom is sort of seen as a sort of space of you know henry jenkins is a very well-known fan scholar sort of says like it's fandom is fascination and frustration right fascination with a thing and then frustration and wanting to make it better and then Hmm. fandom is this sort of space to kind of make it better to speak better to you to your identity to your textual interests all of that so one thing that's been sort of hard for me to reconcile especially as we moved into this kind of era of like quote-unquote toxic fan culture or toxic masculinity in fan culture is it like Fan studies it, many, many years ago when it was founded was seen as like this, like fandom was seen as this utopian feminist space, right? And like that I don't think meshes with our current understanding of what like digital fandom or digital geek culture really looks like, which is often this sort of horrible misogynist hellscape um, that we're all just trying to survive through. Um, so that's been one thing that's been hard. 
the other thing that, that is really that's really taught me is that like my vision of fandom and my experience of fandom as like a white straight woman is not everyone's experience of fandom, right? And I think that oftentimes the ACA fan thing is really great because it gives us insight and, and a deep investment emotionally in the research that we do, but it also can lead to some blind spots. So like I don't know what it's like to be a black queer woman in fandom, right? Like re- even within the most feminist, the most kind of quote unquote utopian fan communities, like racism exists, um, you know, like bias exists. And so I think part of what I'm trying to, you know, perpetually get better at is just talking to more and more different types of fans who are occupying different spaces within fandom to try to get a sense so that it's not just my perspective coming through in my work. Because I think that's really important. And historically, I will say fan studies has not done the best job of talking about race and racism. And it's just now, I think, hit a turning point where that's become much more of a focus. And so that's been the kind of thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, you know, um, making sure that my work reflects sort of fandom as a whole, or at least, you know, if I want to focus in on female fans, reflects a sort of more dynamic collection of what those women's experiences are like and not just my personal interests, my personal experiences, because that's a very limited, you know, stance to take. Since you've been a fan and since you've, like, studied fan studies, how have you seen fandom change? Has it been for better? Are we in for worse? Like, what's our... It's just been... It's wild. Like, it's wild. <laughs> it's so, like, I. that's so, uh, that's so like, unscholarly way to start this, but it is just, it's... You know, I don't want to be that I, – I'm never going to sound like an old person who's telling that story of, like, when I was a child, we had to walk through the snow 10 miles to get I to school. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, so, like, I really got into fandom just as it was getting online. Um, so I've been there since the beginning, for better or for worse. Um, I remember being on Live Journal, and I remember the Live Journal sort of strike through where a bunch of fanish blogs were all purged under under concerns around you know pornography and child pornography in the Harry Potter fandom. Like I remember these kinds of like bellwether moments that I think shaped fandom. A lot of the reason people moved to Tumblr when Tumblr was emerged was because they were worried about censorship on other fanish platforms like LiveJournal. And then Tumblr. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Tumblr decides that, you know, every picture of a boulder is a boob. And then we are now, <laughs> oh in, we're now in a whole new era of like, you know, algorithmic, you know, censorship. And it's going to be an interesting thing to see play out. So, yeah. So, I mean, I have this kind of like when I think about what's changed, the big picture stuff is I think part of it is about where does fandom live online. So to me, it's about like what we used to talk about fandom and fan participation. I think now is we need to talk about in very platform specific terms in some ways. So like Tumblr is a very image driven site, right? LiveJournal was a very text, predominantly like a text driven site, right? So that changes the ways in which fans uh, articulate their fandom, the ways that they create fanish works to share, just the reblogging functionality of something like Tumblr. It like changes the ways in which fan art moves, the way that authorship often gets stripped away over time, and it's very hard to track down where something came from. So I think some of it's technology. So like, you know, the fact that, you know, Twitter became a thing that the TV industry really embraced as something where they wanted to have kind of conversations and 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 discord yeah yeah exactly like we want people to live tweet and they did that purely for business reasons right like they want to be able to monetize and and count their audience and sell that audience to advertisers 
that's the whole point of that. It was less about wanting like a real dialogue. I'm sure some of them did want a real dialogue, but it was it, it had underlying economic incentives, right, for them to do that. But the fact that that dialogue does now exist has fundamentally changed the ways in which, like as we were talking about earlier, fans do activism. It's no longer letter writing campaigns and like sending, you know, nuts to. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was like, I was like, why do we always just think of the Jericho example, of, like sending nuts because it was such a nutty thing to do. Uh, it was good though; it worked. Um, well, like a season. Yeah. So uh, you know, I think that like I think in general the things that have changed. So part of it's technology. Technology shapes the way that fans interact and interact with the industry, and the way that industry surveils fans. Also, I think that like industry is is tracking fans and has a finger. I mean, I think they don't understand fandom still, but I think they definitely have a more of a finger on the pulse. So they're trying to get more of a finger on the pulse of what drives them to do the things they do. There has been much more incorporation of fans' transformative works, things like fan art as promotional objects. So a lot of the conversation in my field um, is about labor in the digital age. Like, what does it mean when fans, like, willingly give their labor, free, often free labor, to industry, and then industry in turn takes those fan objects and uses them for promotional purposes and doesn't compensate fans? That was the Doctor Who booth. At, yeah. Uh, or BBC. Do tell. <laughs> the BBC booth at um, Comic-Con had um, this really beautiful illustration of, uh, I forget her name, uh, the new the new doctor, yeah. who was now a woman. I was like, who is that artist? Because I'm really big into art and stuff. And then I saw that it was all like fan contributed. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I mean, as far as I could tell, I couldn't see their names on there. But then I was, you know, in LA and all those were fan art and stuff. So yeah. I've never seen that really before until you... Until you mentioned that, and I started to connect. Oh, this is a yeah, thing. no, I this mean, is a marketing like, choice. Listen, and like, so now we have this very thin line too between like what is actually fan art. Like, there's tons of professional artists who are fans of things creating art. You know, various matches of art. So there's whole galleries in LA that I used to go to, like Gallery 1988. Yeah, that just strictly have what I would call quote unquote, like high end professional quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes fan art in them. But then there's stuff that, like, you know, you know, a PR, you know, a marketing team is pulling off of Tumblr, right? And fans might want to opt into that. I'm not saying that they're always being exploited or anything like that. Fans are very aware of what they're doing. Uh, they're very aware of the game. Um, but I think that that kind of, like, using fan materials as promotional objects, I think, you know, speaks to me to, like, a kind of shift that has happened where, like, we used to be in the early in the early wild west of the internet you know you had that era where you know media companies were trying to clamp down on legally every type of form of fanish production right cease and desist letters were going out all over the place people were they were trying to like stop fans from like taking the objects that they love and then manipulating them in particular ways and creating new objects out of it um, and I think that they've there's been some legal precedent for why fans are allowed to do to create these kinds of transformative works that has helped. But I think also the fact that they're using them so much more as promotional materials or even that like they're retweeting fan art and that sort of thing, I think really does speak to the fact that the industry has had to kind of take a step back and reassess their sort of uh, relationship to fans and the things they create and had to embrace them kind of for better or for worse. Hmm. You mentioned it before when we do think of fan culture. It does seem a little bit toxic. How can we be better fans? That is a good question. <laughs> uh, again, I, you know, I think what's really interesting is we can be better fans by recognizing our own privilege and recognizing when we ourselves are engaging in boundary policing practices. Like, you don't have to be harassing someone on Twitter or, like, you know, um, bombing them with hate speech in order to be... D- 
exhibiting some kind of forms of boundary policing within fan culture. Like, I find myself doing it, you know, casually here and there, and then I kind of try to catch myself and say, like, oh, no, this is not my place to to determine how people are going to be fans. People can be fans any way they want to be fans, right? I mean, look, it's so funny because, again, so much of my... so I think back to, like, the way that fandom was talked about in the early 90s in fan studies, and it was this kind of utopian, politicized space... And so I would be lying if I didn't say that I was, like, both intellectually and emotionally invested in trying to get us to that reality. I don't think it ever was that. I think that was sort of an overstatement or wishful thinking in a lot of cases. But I do think the way we can be better fans is to try to create fandom as the utopian space that a lot of early fan scholars maybe tried to promise us, right? Which is to say that you, you really do have to, I think find communities that are supportive. I think that the good thing about fan culture being so vast in its current digital incarnation is there's space for everybody. Everyone can find communities. It might not be the big macro community of a fandom might have a lot of toxic pockets in it, right? But there are often a lot of sort of sub-communities within any given macro fan community that you can find people who are interested in the ships you're interested in or supportive of the kind of, you know, cultural readings or analysis you want to do or that they are sort of supportive of the kinds of interventions you want to make or criticisms that you want to make. Um, I just, in general, I think a lot of the ways we also make fandom better is to make sure that we call out reporting on fans that is short-sighted or inflammatory or not offering a full view. So we were talking before we started here, I just did an interview um, with NPR on these like fan edits, these defeminized fan edits of like Avengers Endgame and Last Jedi where they cut out all the female characters and characters of color. And I've had a bunch of requests for interviews on this. And I always start out when people ask me if I want to be interviewed about it by saying, hey, like, this is not really representative of the fandom. This might not even be a fan. This might be like a troll who's just looking for attention. And basically, by doing this story, we are giving this person precisely what they desire. And so I want it to be really clear from the outset that, like, I think we should pay attention to the facets of fandom equally, if not more, that are doing really interesting, progressive, cool, good work as we do the toxic elements. I think it's really easy to fixate on the toxic elements because they are so spectacular, because they are so horrible. That's not to say that we should ignore it. I'm not, this is not a don't feed the trolls uh, based argument. Um, I think we need to recognize and deal with the fact that like systemic, you know, sexism and racism and homophobia exists in fan culture, even if we don't want to claim that that does. Right. But I do think that like by focusing all of our energy on that, we inevitably kind of don't hold up the things that do make fandom beautiful and wonderful and transformative, not just in terms of like textually transformative, but like culturally potentially transformative. Um, So we need to be giving equal attention to both ends of the spectrum, I guess is what I'd say. On that note, your book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when can we pick it up? You can pick it up now. It oh, is really? out. Yes. So it came out in April. Um, it's called Fake Geek Girls, Fandom, Gender, and the Convergence Culture Industry. It looks at about the last decade in geek culture um, and looks at how kind of the fanboy you know, stereotype became entrenched as this new power demographic in Hollywood and how this has had a sort of mostly negative <laughs> impact on women. In geek culture. So we uh, so I will not lie and say that it's like bright and sunny. It deals with the darker, you know, slightly more toxic sides of this kind of cultural shift. But basically what I'm interested in is like, well, what does it mean when you kind of like standardize the fanboy as the fan demographic? Women are often like, you know, 
seen as kind of like a surplus audience, like great if you're here, but we're not going to sort of cater to you, right, in any way. And oftentimes, like female-driven fan properties, things like Twilight, get like openly mocked precisely because they're kind of feminized media objects. So I'm interested in this kind of long history of devaluing female uh, audiences, this long history of devaluing feminized kind of media objects. And I'm also interested in the ways in which um, like fans are speaking back to that. So I, so there's a, there's like brief moments in the book where like I'm not, it's not all gloom and doom. I'm mostly focused, I have moments where I focus on like various kind of fan activist campaigns. So like the Hawkeye Initiative, which basically draws, do you know the Hawkeye Initiative? Oh, not the comic, right? Oh, or no, is it the no. So this is Jeremy br- Renner? <laughs> well, sort of. This is, this is brilliant. This is a tough Tumblr I came across ages ago, um, years ago at this point, um, that basically people submit drawings where they basically redraw female superheroines, but as Hawkeye. So, like, imagine, like, the sexiest Red Sonia cover you can imagine, but instead it's Hawkeye. Oh, how very distinct and <laughs> so so. There's there's a whole longer conversation be here about like, well, why Hawkeye and why right, like yeah, so? Yeah. Why did that get picked? I talk about it all in the book. <laughs> uh, but but so like these moments where it's like it should when you put when you put a very skimpy costume on Hawkeye and make him stick out his you know his chest and his his derriere and like pose in the way that female superhero characters get posed. The absurdity of those images, like it's a very funny sight. It's not, it's, but it's also doing like very significant and I think very disruptive, good feminist work, right? Where it's like, look at how these women get drawn. Like, this is crazy. Like, if you saw Hawkeye dressed like this, you would, everyone would be out in the streets being like, this is absurd, you know? Um, so, so I, I focus a lot on those kind of moments too that are kind of like moments where like, Mostly female fans are kind of like pushing back at these at these kinds of clear uh, efforts to kind of gesture to them that they are not considered to be part of this geek culture, fan culture audience. And also I'm looking at things, you know, like Pinterest and, and uh, you know, fan fashion and things like that. So I'm looking at like geek girly culture, too, and how that's kind of evolved over the past decade, too. I recently just learned <clears throat> the term Disney branding. Oh, like Disney, Disney bounding. bounding? Yes, Disney, Disney bounding. bounding. I was just at Disneyland, and I was I was thinking about doing some Disney bounding, and I was like, no, I just want to be comfortable. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not going to dress up like a Dole Whip or you know whatever. Uh, yeah, no, Disney bounding is super interesting. I don't I don't talk about it a ton in the book, but um, I do talk about it a little bit. It's this this practice of basically Disney has a policy. Speaking of like being adults and aging out of things. Disney has a policy that over a certain age, you can't wear a costume in their theme parks. Well. Which, you know, is fair. And for various legal reasons, I totally get. And they don't want people to mistake people for, you know, like their their actual actors, which I get. What's interesting, though, is they are now selling full adult cosplay in their parks. I was just at Galaxy's Edge of Disneyland. There are whole shops that are devoted to, like, selling adult, you know, Rey outfits, adult Jedi robes with signs above them saying, like, you can buy this, but you can't wear it in the park. Oh, how interesting. Which is was super fascinating to me. But, you know, like, if you're a kid, you can dress up. So, basically, Disney bounding was this way to, like, make sort of casual fashion that sort of evokes a particular character. So, like, let's say it's... Um, uh, like Captain Hook, right? You want to dress up as Captain Hook. They would they maybe like say, you know, like wear a pair of black skinny jeans and a pair of black, you know, combat boots with big buckles and a, you know, a big belt and like a red coat. And then, you know, like put a, like a feather and, you know, like a feather in your hair. So like, you know, like here's the kind of inspired. accessory. Here's way, yeah. So it's inspired by, 
But they have them for everything. It's my Dole Whip crack was the fact that like Dole Whip has become this like big point of fascination at Disneyland in the last decade since I've been there. Apparently, I was just, it was just the thing you ate when you went to the Tiki Room when I was going to Disneyland. <laughs> now it's apparently like there's a cult of Dole Whip that that exists. There were like lines around the block for it. I've never had it, but somebody tweeted out a photo of like nearly 18 18 wheelers of Dole. Wow. From Comic-Con. So I don't know where they were at, but I did not see them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, the, if you go to Disneyland right now, like, on their main street, they have this, They have this like, basically like a, like a boutique with, like, beautiful kind of 50s cut dresses that have, like, Dole Whip on them. Okay. You can buy a purse that's shaped like a Dole Whip. I mean, it's like the, the sort of the Disney bounding. What's interesting, though, that's a perfect example. Like, Disney bounding was, like, this fan workaround. They were like, okay, you won't let us cosplay in your parks that's cool we're gonna find this workaround we do like casual dress but it will evoke the character and we can still feel like we're kind of doing like everyday cosplay cosplay light yeah and then disney clearly caught on to this and they were like oh hey we can make money off of this and now there are like full boutiques in both disneyland and out in downtown disney that sell basically like disney bounding gear I saw a Bo Peep outfit that was basically a costume from the most recent Toy Story movie. And I was like, well, so can I wear that into the park? Like, that's basically a costume. But it was kind of riding this line between casual wear and costume. And I was like, well, if I buy it at the park, can I wear it in? I don't know. I did not test that theory. But I had lots lots of questions. I had more questions than answers this time going to Disneyland about, like, where the line between costume and Disney bounding really exists. Because they are clearly trying to monetize that trend. Um, but they also seem to be still holding firm on the fact that you can't actually wear that stuff in the park. Well, my last question for you is, what are you working on for next Comic-Con? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's literally, we're recording this literally, like, days after the last comic Do You know what's so funny is, like, I shouldn't have an answer for that, but I actually do. Do you? I do. Oh, wait, hold on. Is it, okay, I kind of okay. want to guess. Okay, yeah. Okay. It's not, I will say, it's not from this past year. I'm going to give you some clues. Okay. Something got announced that was big this year at Comic-Con that made me think about a a prior iteration of this movie that I was like, oh, we never did that. That would be fun. Is it female Thor? Well, so no. It's, well, I don't want to get into female Thor. (laughs) Uh, I got a lot of conflicted feelings. Not about a female Thor, about that particular female Thor. Um, But no, it is, it is Thor based. It's Um, Ragnarok based. I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep going. um, Frickin' Valkyrie? No, I love Valkyrie though. Valkyrie the said. thing that I've wanted to do for Korg. a really long no, no oh my I god, no, 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 listen, Korg is my favorite. Like I, like no joke. You want to come? I, no, I listen. I, if I could feel like I could pack and pull off Korg, maybe oh. Korg, maybe Korg is in in the mix. I will say Korg I is like maybe just Meek. And he's like, oh, you're alive. <laughs> Korg is my favorite MCU character potentially. It's very sad but true. Love um, it. So the thing that I actually was thinking about was there. Um, so you know. Um, the Grandmaster. Uh, oh. So not that, though. So his sort of personal bodyguard in that movie has this incredible armor set. Like, I haven't done armor. So I'm kind of like, what can I do oh. next time that I haven't done yet? She's got this incredible armor set. And really, honestly, the sad part about this is the thing that's most appealing to me about this cosplay, which would be incredibly hard to make, incredibly bulky to wear, very tough, is the fact that I would not have to wear a wig. I wore so many. I had so many wig dramas this year that I was like, I had to hack together like three wigs to make that one for Doc Ock. That I'm like, oh, if I could just like put my hair in a bun next year, wouldn't that be great? And this character, I could do that with. So I did. I did have a moment where I was like, well, maybe that, and we could do a big armor set, and then my husband could dress up as as uh, the Grandmaster, and then it would be sort of like he could help me with that. It'd be fun. But now that you say that, I'm now like, ooh, Korg. Korg I mean, would be fun. I saw somebody dress up as a. Uh... 
uh, the Porg Island, like literally the oh, Porg wow, Island. Oh wow, that's fun! At a with Star a bunch Wars of porgs, with a bunch of porgs, and like little fun. puppets and everything like that. So the options yeah. are endless. Yes, you could be rocks. You it's, have you have some. True. You could hold pamphlets. That would be ah! fun. I do like that. <laughs> I do like a giveaway as part of the cosplay. It's always really fun. Sure. Oh my well, gosh. You have three hundred and sixty. Yeah, some odd days. days. Yeah, no, no. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody else will catch my eye in the next year. I always like to like whatever am I most excited about. That's that that like gives you the drive to actually finish the thing. Well, it's super inspiring, and I can't wait to see what it looks like. I next know. Year. I'm excited, and I'm excited to know that there's such a cool like uh, geek culture community here in Austin. I feel very. I felt very at home here right when I moved here, and now I know why. Same. <laughs> Suzanne, thank you so much. for Thank coming you in. so much. It's been so much fun. that's our show. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our sponsor, Copenhagen Furniture. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter. We're at loveaustin360. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find our podcast. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is a production of the feature staff at the Austin American Statesman. This episode was produced by me, Elizabeth Dallas. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find everything you'd ever want to know about this show and its contributors, including photos of Suzanne and I cosplaying at San Diego Comic-Con at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us some feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and our roll of duct tape for that last minute fix on our Comic-Con cosplays. Until next week, we'll see you letting your fan flag fly wherever you boldly go. Since 1993, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. Now at Copenhagen, save $100 instantly for every $1,000 you spend on stressless recliners and sofas or save $300 on stressless sunrise recliners. For more ways to save, shop online at copenhagenliving.com or visit our showroom on Breaker Lane. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary.